Aurelia Rogers was watching the children outside, particularly what she called the rowdy boys, Mm -hmm. and she was reflecting on them and how they could help them. They'd gotten approval to start the primary. As they continued to try to orchestrate it and put it together, they realized that this needed to be for all children. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to be discussing Chapter 30, A Steady Onward Movement, and this is included in Saints, Volume 2. We're excited to have Sister Jennifer Free from the General Primary Board in the studio. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here today. Sister Free, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about what you do as a member of the Primary General Board? You bet. My name is Jennifer Free, as you mentioned. I live here in Utah. I'm married. I have a wonderful husband, Brian, and children, and I have a grandson, and I enjoy that. I have spent time serving in the church and in the community throughout my life. I love serving as a member of the Primary General Board. How long have you been on the board? I have been serving for almost two years now. There were five of us that were called at that time. Now we have seven board members, and so they've added a few with the changes. Sister Free, the first time I got to meet you was when you became a reviewer on the Saints Project. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's been like to be a reviewer of Volume 1 and now Volume 2? Yes. One of my first assignments I received as a primary board member, actually, was the opportunity to participate in reviewing the manuscript for Volume 1 and Volume 2 of Saints, and I have loved it. I think my favorite part of it has been coming to know the early saints of the church and feeling like they have become a part of my life, where I've learned from them and their experiences, and I feel like I, I've gained like new friends and new insights and the opportunity to learn from their lives, real people with real experiences. And what are the assignments that you take on as a member of of the primary board? So currently I serve as the chair of the primary messaging committee where we try to help the general primary presidency deliver their key messages and make sure that they're getting out to the brothers and sisters that serve in primary. I also serve as a member of the children's songbook revision committee which is a exciting and monumental task. (laughs) I spend a lot of my time there. So all I really need to know is, is Popcorn Poppins still going to be there? Sister Free, don't let us down. I will say those decisions haven't been made yet. How's that? (laughs) Well, I'm going to be super sad if we lose Popcorn Poppins. We all love that one, don't we? Yeah. There's so many good ones. Well, Sister Free, we are really excited to have you on today. We get the unique opportunity in this chapter to learn about the origins of primary. So we're excited to get your perspective on that. Before we get into that, though, at the beginning of this chapter, Brigham Young has just died. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about his funeral and those processions. What were your takeaways from the passing of Brother Brigham? As I sat and reflected on his life and the impact that he had among the saints, I thought about the fact that there were a lot of members of the church who did not know church membership without him Yeah, and how they traveled across the plains with him, perhaps. It was very different then as it is today where they interacted with him throughout the territory of Utah. They saw him. So I can imagine that that was a great loss for them. I thought it was particularly interesting when I read about the procession and his funeral and how they had placed him in a very simple box, but there was a glass panel there just over his face so that when the saints came by, they could have a final look on their prophet's face. And I think that was probably very meaningful for them. I thought it was really interesting, too, that Brigham asked them not to dress in black. I don't honestly know if that was a practice of that time already or if that was something that Brigham introduced, 
But I did have to stop and think, we don't do that as members of the church. When we go to a funeral at the church house or at a meeting house, we don't all just dress in black. And I wonder if that's because it started here with Brother Brigham. Needless to say, it is kind of a, an interesting part of our culture that we still don't do that. Yeah, very. I thought it was very interesting as well. I got to actually go to the viewing of President Monson. So reading about Brigham Young and his death made me think of that. And it is incredible that we have a prophet that we can get so close to. I mean, in hearing so much from them and in following their teachings. But I did love after John Taylor was called, and he said, the work we are engaged in is not the work of man. Joseph Smith did not originate it, neither did Brigham Young, he declared. It emanated from God. He is the author. And I just thought that's so comforting because, yeah, at this time when the saints are dealing with the death of this prophet that they don't know the church without, that's such a comfort that this is God's work and he's leading his church. And so I just think that's neat. I did want to know, what were your takeaways from this quote? Because he also said, Basically, it's up to us now to magnify our callings as members of the church. Do you have any experiences that you wanted to share or any takeaways that you had when he said, as we do this, we may have a steady onward movement guided by the Lord? And at this time when he passed away, there was also all the uncertainty going on with Reynolds and that right, the Supreme, that Court, Supreme case. Court case that was still pending. And so you think about the uncertainty and the questions that they had with that as well. And I think there is so much application for that today as we face hardships, as we face uncertainties in policy or in questions that we have, but that we can take confidence in knowing that this is the Lord's work. He is the author of it. He wrote it, he guides it, and he leads it. And I think each one of us can move forward with that same confidence. And this definitely was a time of massive change. So we have Brigham Young passing away who has led the saints, as you said, it's the only prophet that most of the membership has ever known because a lot of them have joined after Joseph died. They've immigrated here, they've founded communities across the West, they've irrigated, they've put up schools, they've had all these different troubles, and now Brigham is gone. And then in this chapter, we find out that the Supreme Court weighs in and they say, yeah, you can believe what you want, but you can't practice it. Now we are in for some really difficult times ahead as we move into future chapters and we face what comes to be called the raid and the whole underground. And so this is a pretty big shift here in chapter 30. There's another amazing character which happens to be Brigham Young's daughter. And I wonder if you could tell us what you thought about Susa Young. When she was younger, we called her Susie Young and uh, in her later life, Susie Young. What were you thinking about her experience? Well, I loved this story from Susie Young's life. And we know she was the second daughter of Brigham Young. She had a happy childhood, it seems, where she enjoyed all of those different things and then moved to southern Utah and married Alma Dunford and had a very difficult marriage, very abusive, unhappy marriage. And I can kind of envision her trying to make that marriage work for so many years. When Brigham passed away, she had a dream where she was with Alma, and Brigham had called them together to give them an assignment. And unlike what he would do in earlier times where he would give the assignment to her husband, Alma, he actually gave the assignment to Sousa. And she was taken back by that. And in this dream, as she begins to leave, she's thinking about that, and she runs into Eliza, our snow. And she asks Eliza, why would he do this? Why would he give me the assignment? And Eliza actually says to her, that he did not understand then, but he does now in terms of her relationship with Alma. 
And I think this dream then gave her the confidence, perhaps an answer to Ernest's prayer that she had been seeking, giving her permission and that opportunity to move forward and pursue a divorce from Alma, which then brought many trials with it as well. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of heartbreak in this story, and there's also some hope. I mean, we learned from this dream that it sounds like Brigham Young didn't know the extent of what her marriage was like. And maybe she didn't disclose all of it, or maybe he just didn't know. But it's amazing that she felt that confidence to move forward. And it's fascinating because in those days, divorce was more rare and more difficult. And when the decisions were made, it sounds like it was more in favor of the man, especially for childcare even. And so he, even in his abusive state, I guess he got the custody of the children. So there was a four-year-old and a two-year-old. It was really hard to read. And then what I say is hopeful. What gave me hope is that she just kind of thinks, okay, what's next? What do I need to do? Because she had no financial means. And she was encouraged to enroll in BYU Academy, which is now Brigham Young University. And I just think that's neat that she had that opportunity for education and can move forward in that venue in the midst of this heartbreak and terrible situation. I find it interesting from this situation and another way for us to recognize the application, but she went from having very difficult thing, moving through, moving forward. And it became kind of a training ground for her to now be able to really do so many incredible things later in her life, which we'll learn more about. And it provided an opportunity for her to really fulfill the purpose that she was sent here. That's an amazing perspective. To go back for just one minute, the dream that you mentioned, Shaylin and I were talking about that before we began today. It's one of my favorite parts of the book. It gives me a lot of hope that when Brigham could look down and see, and he had a better understanding, that then he and Susan now can see eye to eye. Now he really understood. Speaking of hardships in this life, this chapter is kind of jam-packed with all kinds of Mm -hmm. stories. We also have Jonathan Napella in Hawaii serving in Molokai, and he meets a world-famous now Catholic father there, whose name is Father Damien, and they become friends. What what did you think about that part of the story? Oh, I loved it. I loved that relationship because they had different views religiously. And it's my understanding, I'm not sure, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they had to kind of work through some of those differences in the beginning of the story. Is that correct? But in the end, here they served in Molokai among the colonies there with people who had leprosy. And working through those differences and then finding common ground, they were able to really bless and strengthen and care for and take care of those people who were suffering. And it's a beautiful relationship that teaches us all about the opportunities that we too can have to look beyond our differences to really work together to do good. I love that. Today we would say, oh, this is an ecumenical outreach program. But really they were just friends. And they saw a need together and said, we're going to serve together. And I love that message. And I think it's something that I can certainly do better at. But as a church, I see us doing more and more. In our welfare programs, we work tons with Catholic charities. We work with all kinds of different groups to provide assistance after disasters. And I think it follows right in line with Jonathan Napella and Father Damien. This is the example of what true Christians do. Yeah, and it happens on a global church basis, and it's happening in our small communities throughout the world. And we're becoming better neighbors and better friends and learning how to work together. And Jonathan had contracted leprosy himself. And originally when he went to the island, he went with his wife who had leprosy, and he didn't 
at the time. Right. But then he got it. And so what was neat to me is that through this service and this connection he made with Father Damien, he was still able to serve despite the horrible things that he was going through and his pain and suffering. And I thought that was a neat aspect of the story as well. It is a beautiful part of the story. It's been really cool to get to know the Napellas and the Hawaiian saints as we read volume two of Saints. There's another wonderful part of the story, Sister Free, and it's really one of the main <laughs> reasons we got to talk with you today, and that is we meet a sister, Aurelia Rogers. Tell us about Sister Rogers and what is she concerned about? So Aurelia Rogers is not unlike many women we know today. She is a woman who is keenly aware of the needs of children. And she was a woman who, as a child, her mother passed away when she was, I believe, 11 years old. And uh, her father left on a mission. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and so she and an older sister helped raise her younger siblings. And um, even by the time she'd reached the age of 40, she then had seven children of her own. So she was surrounded by children and knew about children, but she was worried, to answer your question, she was worried. She was watching the children outside and particularly what she called the rowdy boys, mm -hmm. and she was reflecting on them and how they could help them. Yeah, she sees these rowdy boys, and she has, I think, a revelation. She prays. She's trying to figure out what to do, and she proposes an idea to Sister Eliza Snow, who's visiting uh, Sister Snow would go around to the various wards and branches, and she would speak to them about Relief Society and other things. And, and what's the idea she proposes? Well, she proposed organizing an organization for boys, young boys, to help teach them and train them and help prepare them to be good husbands. I love that. I have a smile on my face right now just thinking <laughs> that the primary was originally thought of to be for boys and to help in their spiritual development because they were rowdy and stayed up late at night. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. They need the help. They got these little boys just running around, not accomplishing much. And Eliza tells her, if we're going to do this, not just for the boys, but also for the girls. Yes, that happened a little later on after they'd gotten approval to start the primary. And then as they continue to try to orchestrate it and put it together, they realized that this needed to be for all children. I think this is kind of an interesting idea. Sometimes we think that direction only comes down to the profit. And then from the profit, then it moves out through the organization. But this is an instance where Sister Rogers, Aurelia Rogers, she saw a need. She took it to her bishop, John W. Hess, and they took that up the priesthood line, and then we got primary. What does that tell us about how revelation is received in the church? That's a really interesting and, and great question. I think that it tells us that we all have an opportunity to be able to advance the Lord's work, that He will use all of us. He will utilize us as tools. And as we live worthy and as we act on and seek for revelation to address a need that we may have, that the Lord will guide us. And I think we can see that as we work in our wards and in our stakes, and it happens on a general level of the church as well. Well, in our particular callings, I just have to remember, too, we're called to be us, not to be something that we think we need to be. And so with our experiences and our ideas, those are valuable, and we can bring those forward and receive revelation for our callings. I think that's amazing. So what was primary like then? And then maybe contrast that a little bit with what primary is now. How has it changed over the years? Right. 
Well, there's a lot of similarities, and then there's been some changes. Primary Then was an organization that supported families in teaching and training their children, and that's what Primary is today. It's an organization that supports and teaches children. I found it interesting that you mentioned that Bishop Hess, when they came up with the idea and it was approved by President Taylor, then they went to Bishop Hess, and the first thing he did was he and Aurelia met with the parents in their ward and talked to them. So they went straight to the parents first. And the teachings then were simple to focus on helping children be nice and be kind and avoid contention and all those things. We really, in primary today, focus on helping children learn doctrine of the gospel and help them know how to live it in their lives. And so those would be some of the ways that primary is functioning then and now, similar but but different. So Sister Free, while we're comparing and contrasting primary then and primary now, something that Bishop Hess said stuck out to me, and I want to hear your thoughts on this as we're, again, comparing. He said, I hope parents will feel the importance of this movement. If anything in this life should engross the attention of the parents, it should be the care of their children. So what do you think about that in the context of primary today? You know, the first thing that comes to mind when I think about that is President Nelson's recent address to the sisters in the church when I think his talk was actually called A Plea to the Sisters. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the need for us to prepare ourselves so that we can raise a sin-resistant generation. And we talk a lot in primary today about what does that look like, a sin-resistant generation. And we look at the programs that the church has put together, the, the changes, the recent adjustments, whether it be in curriculum, um, the Sunday schedule, and now the upcoming children and youth of the Church of Jesus right. Christ of Latter-day Saints. And all of these things have been created and the adjustments have been made so that we can continue to have a very home-centered, church-supported learning for children and youth in the church. And it kind of goes along with that idea that it is our utmost importance to have the, the care of our children forefront in our minds. As you were reading the book, was there anything about primary that you learned that was new to you that you hadn't known before? There was actually. There were a couple of things, but one of them most for notably was that primary was originally for six-year-olds to 14-year-olds. I did not know that. You know, today we have 18 months to 11, and so the shift in ages was different. So that was different for me. I was surprised. I didn't realize they were organized in classes and age groups, just like we have now, but they actually had older children that helped monitor and care for each other in, in that capacity as well. As I've studied the history of primary, one of the things that's been really interesting to me is, even though things are somewhat different, it was interesting for me to learn how similar the foundation still is, yeah. even after all of these years. The foundation and purposes are really very, very similar. It has to be, I'm thinking, the most common calling in the church has to be primary teacher. Oh, yeah. In my ward, I live in a ward where we have lots of young families. We have nearly 100 adults serving in primary. And around the church, I think everybody probably at some point has been a primary teacher. So this is an organization that affects all of us. Church on Sunday is a primary friendly place to be now. I think with the time changes, it's really helped children and teachers. You think about those primary presidents, they have a large number of children enrolled typically in some areas, and they have a lot of adults that they also minister to and care for. And so they really do have a monumental task as they care for and minister for children and adults. It's a very large organization. I might say it could be the largest in the ward. Yeah, I, for sure, in, mm -hmm. in my experience, it has been. I was just laughing because we're talking about the big job that primary presidents have. And so the first Sunday that they really launched this primary program, there were more than 200 children gathered for the first meeting. And I just laugh because it says 
Aurelia did her best to maintain order. <laughs> I'm like, isn't that what we all do every week? That is what week primary, primary presidents <laughs> and teachers do every week is their best yeah. to maintain order. And they do it so well. And she didn't have the sharing time or singing time or any of that. We're lucky we have such great resources now. I did want to mention to our listeners, if you live in the Intermountain West area and you ever have a chance in Farmington, Utah, which just happens to be where I live, but in Farmington, there's what they call the Old Rock Chapel. And in the chapel, this is where Aurelia Rogers and Bishop Hess and the primary children met. There's a wonderful painting, a very large panorama that's in that building. And next to it, there's a little museum. And you might have to call ahead to make arrangements, but it's really cool to go there and be able to see where primary began. And right now, downtown in Salt Lake City at the Church History Library, that's directly east of the conference center. There's a little exhibit that has what's called Foundations of Faith. And we have the primary minute book from the Farmington Ward from their very first meeting on display. So oh, that's amazing. You can come and see the beginnings of primary. So in this chapter, we are talking about a lot of women who made major contributions. And one of these women that we wanted to talk about is Emmeline Wells. So Sister Free, do you mind just telling us a little bit about what's going on for her at this time? Yes. So Emmeline Wells joined with Zina Williams, and they were about champion the rights of the women in Utah. They spoke out locally as well as throughout the country about the importance of women's rights. And in doing so, they attracted the attention of some of the leading women's rights activists, particularly Susan B. Anthony. And so they were welcomed and invited to or sent to lobby in Washington, D.C. to speak for the women's rights here in Utah. While they were there, there was the still waiting for the George Reynolds verdict from the Supreme Court that had come up, whether they were going to uphold his conviction for the polygamy charges. So they were hoping to go and be able to speak and perhaps gain some support from that as well. And so they headed off to Washington to meet with Congress and actually even with the president. They met with President um, Rutherford Hayes and presented their case and, and did so in a way that attracted both remarks of them being courageous women, but then of course there's always the naysayers as well and those that didn't see it so positively. I thought it was incredible that they got to meet with the president because I just didn't realize that and that we were having so much recognition at that time. Not only we did have a lot of negative attention with everything involved with plural marriage, but there's a lot of positive attention too. And even Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Caddy Stanton, they came to Salt Lake and spoke to Latter-day Saint women in the early 1870s. And I just think that's neat that women, especially as an organization, were receiving this recognition and given these opportunities. Yeah. It does feel to me like a lot of people this will be surprising to even today that this is kind of a stereotype breaker right as you said the naysayers they're saying oh all the women in utah are just suppressed and they have no rights and they're just browbeaten and they can't speak for themselves and then who shows up emmeline wells and zina presidia williams and they're capable speakers susan b anthony she was very good friends with emmeline that's like amazing. Emmeline has a picture of Susan B. Anthony in a photograph. She's sitting at her desk. And if you look in the corner, there's actually a picture of Susan B. Anthony on the wall. They weren't just casual acquaintances. Like they were friends and champions. And it's pretty darn cool. We're going to see this in future chapters. But Utah women do get the right to vote. Second territory and first in the nation to vote, which is pretty incredible that these so-called suppressed women 
are the ones that are the first to gain the vote in an election in the United States. That we want to be involved, that we push for that and work for that. It's an amazing story. And we're asked to, even by our priesthood leaders, we're asked to become informed and to speak and to lead in our communities and in, in the efforts that we feel strongly about. Well, Sister Free, we so much appreciate you taking the time to come and visit with us today and for your service on the General Primary Board. I'm really excited to see what the new songbook comes out for children. (laughs) Good luck on that assignment. I would just remind our listeners that many of the topics we talked about today, including women's suffrage, Emmeline Wells, Sousa Young-Gates, the church academies, plural marriage in Utah— These topics, we have essays written at the Church History Topics section of the Gospel Library app. You can also go to study.churchofjesuschrist.org, click on the History section, and you'll find those topics there as well. And we hope you'll join us next time for our discussion. We'll be talking about Chapter 31, The Shattered Threads of Life. So make sure you read along and catch up if you're not caught up. And as a reminder, you can find Saints Volume 2 at churchofjesuschrist.org and also in your Gospel Library app under the History section. Thanks for joining us. Mm